Welcome to Quilt and Tell, where quilters who love all aspects of the craft, from traditional and contemporary to art and modern, share their passion and perspective on all things quilty. I'm Tracy Mooney. I'm Lori Baker. And I'm Ginger Sheehy Daddy. Hello, everyone. We are so excited about today's show. Our guest in Open Studios today is Jennifer Swope. She is the David and Roberta Logie Associate Curator of Textiles and Fashion Arts at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. She is here to tell us all about an exhibit that is currently running at the museum. It is entitled Fabric of a Nation, American Quilt Stories. We are so, so excited to talk to her about this really exciting exhibit. And in our final segment, we have a new two minutes of kindness call to action for you. So stay tuned. Hello, ladies. How are you? Are you ready to catch up? I am. <laughs> yes, very much so. Yeah. So Lori, you look super, super anxious. What are you, what are you, what have you been working on? What's been going on? Well, first of all, while I was gone to Houston, my husband took the wood burning stove out of my sewing studio because I told him I wouldn't use it because I didn't want the smell of smoke in my projects. Oh, that's a good point. So that gives me another probably six feet of wall space. Oh, oh this is going to be fun. Oh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Lori, I'm get, you're, you're getting six feet of more wall space. I would just kill for six feet of space. Like, I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Same, Ginger, same. <laughs> yeah. And after we talked to Meg on the podcast last time, I got kind of excited about doing clothes. So I have a second top, all done but one sleeve. (laughs) And in the meantime, I also finished a quilt since we talked the last time. So I've been just having a good time. Oh, my gosh. I'm so jealous. That's (laughs) great. All right. Now, how about you, Tracy? What have you been working on? I know you've been slammed with work. (laughs) Yeah, I have been slammed with work. And I can probably... um, you know, talk a little bit about it because by the time this show um, goes live, uh, what I've been working on will be live as well. So I came up with the idea for a sort of holiday countdown, as it were. Uh, we have an enormous archive of quilts, quilt patterns, uh, ebooks, all kinds of different things. And it occurred to me that it would be really fun to do sort of like an advent calendar but for quilters and you don't have to celebrate Christmas. You can just, you know, like quilts. <laughs> it could be called quilt, quiltmas, quiltmas. I like that. <laughs> it's called the peace on earth holiday countdown. Okay. Oh. And who doesn't want peace on earth? That's awesome. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So I've been working frantically on that. So, um, so essentially it is going to be, you know, for each day, there is going to be a download and a little note written for me and it'll have a pattern and I'll talk about why I chose the pattern. And then maybe there'll be a color option. Maybe there'll be a video to go with it. And, um, one of my favorite recipes that I make during the month of December. And let's see what else. Um, uh, I'll, I'll share what I'm watching on TV. You know, I've already started binging all of the, the holiday things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hallmark is like, you know, definitely on my previous channel thing when I flip. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I you know, would never have considered myself a Hallmark channel person, but I'm getting like a, a few like that I just love. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I've got a few of those that, I, that I've already watched this weekend that were favorites from last year and a new one that just aired this Saturday that I've watched already and it was really cute. So, so there you go. So hopefully I will have information linking to that in the show notes. Um, uh, but over the weekend, I actually made two different things. One was a color option for, for this, um, for these, you know, special countdown patterns. And then the other thing that I made was I happened to see on Saturday morning, I happened to see a um, a pattern listed for a uh, thread catcher. You know, just a little bag that you sort of hang. Yeah. And I realized I don't have one. 
And I had been thinking about it when I went to Houston because it actually, one of the classes that I signed up for said to bring a thread catcher. And I thought, I don't have one. Like, I'll just have to, you know, use a little paper bag or something. So um, the pattern was by uh, Sue Fow. Um, Lori, you know who she is, right? We worked do. with her in the past. And she basically apparently wanted to make a bag for a for her car, you know, like a little trash bag, a reusable one, and had so much fun making the large one that she kept sizing it down to make one. And so I think it's got four different sizes of, uh, and so I literally saw it, purchased the pattern, and then went immediately and, and got fabric. And I think the whole process took me maybe 40 minutes oh. from purchasing the pattern to having a completed item. And so yes, it was totally no. satisfying. Cool. <laughs> And I saw that and you posted it on Instagram this past weekend I and I saw it. It was so cute. Oh, and, it was and adorable. And the funny, I've had that fabric a fabric set aside for a couple of years now. Pulled it out and decided I was going to use it because it's sewing themed. And uh-huh. then realized it was an Alex Anderson collection, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. I was like, wow, I've had this on my shelf for I don't even know how long. And I had no idea that it was her yep. collection. <laughs> It was just waiting for the right project. <laughs> and I need to make more now because they're yes. super cute. And I need one for the car. Mm. For sure. It was so funny. My first question when I saw that was like, you, I, there's thread catchers? And I was uh-huh. like, of course there's thread catchers. Like, why would there not be thread catchers? But I just had never thought, like, I don't know. I had just never actually seen or thought about the fact that they're out there. Why <laughs> would why would quilters use a garbage uh, yeah. Then. No, I have like a little bag <laughs> that I use as my thread catcher. And I'm like, no, I need the real deal now. <laughs> so what about you, Ginger? What have you been working on? Oh, I've had to like shift my quilting gears because uh, we are in um, the full musical play. My daughter's in a play Ooh. at the school. And uh, like an idiot, again, I signed up to help with costumes. And uh, oh my gosh, <laughs> it has like been full idiot. on. Well, well, I have to admit I was spoiled in her elementary school. She had a group of fan- uh, parents that were really active. So it was like, I mean, it was a full on blown, like every parent got involved. It's me and one other woman and that's it. There's (gasps) no other parents that are helping. And I was like, oh gosh, what did I get? You know, but it has been so much fun. I have had a blast. We've been able to do more thrifting probably than sewing, uh, but finding stuff. And then, you know, so my tailoring has gotten better over the last, you know, couple of weeks or whatever. I've been um, just, you know, trimming things and hemming things and doing that. And then um, I had to, I had one, project in particular that was keeping me super busy. They were able to get mic packs. Um, and the, the, uh, actually it was the other mom who volunteered me for this. I came in late okay. and I was like, man, I'm never going to be late for a meeting right. again. Oh uh, but she, um, they, the <laughs> director was like, I really would love it if we had some type of a belt that could hold the mics that nobody could see and this and that. And she was just like, Oh yeah, Ginger will figure that out. She'll do that. And I was like, I get there and she's like, okay, so this is what they want. Can you do it? And I was like, yeah, I think I can. <laughs> I was like, all right. So I did. I was able to come up with this idea. It's just elastic. And um, uh, I created just a little pouch that you can put the mic packs in. And then that way the kids can just uh, wear it as a belt underneath all of their clothes. And so far they work. And I've only had two of them that have lost them. So <laughs> I was like, all right, that's okay. That's not bad. You're not supposed so, to let them keep them. <laughs> well, I, we're not letting them, but they you know, forget they go home with them on instead of like taking them off and putting them with their costumes or whatever. So, uh, yeah, so it was very frustrating last week, uh, Athiel, that one little boy, he <laughs> twice now. And then, but I heard he found his other one. So now we've got more. So <laughs> anyway, so that's been a lot of fun and that's been taking up a ton of my time. The coolest thing though, is that... So we had done these videos, they're called sneak peeks, where we just focus on different products from different clients. And one of the clients that we had was Brother Sewing. And I was able to get my hands on the Innovis BQ3100. And so what was so cool is for each of the belts for the kids, I was able to embroider their character name onto the belt. So it made it so much easier for them to like, uh, you know, just figure out who's who's because they all were different sizes. And oh my goodness, you would have thought I had like given these kids a million dollars each. Like, when I gave them with their actual Aww. character name. How fun. That was awesome. So it's actually turned out to be a lot of fun. We have our first dress rehearsal this afternoon. So hopefully it'll go well. Um, and then thir- this week is Thursday's the big performance. So uh, it's been pure drama and excitement all around the house. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I love it. What, what's the show? 
They're doing it's a really cute show. It's called Descendants, and it's basically about the kids of like the um, fairy godmother and um, oh. Maleficent, <laughs> and you know Sleeping Beauty, and like all these you know Disney characters, and it's really cute. Um, so and all oh, these poor kids, they have just worked so hard. So fingers crossed, it all goes well. But they're gonna look fabulous. <laughs> Yay. Awesome. I love that so much. Yeah. So glad I can use my sewing skills for something. <laughs> that's amazing. And and good for you for volunteering because that's a that's a big deal, you know? It's it is a, a big deal. You're making a memory that Parker's gonna carry forever. Yeah. And she hasn't once been like, Mom, you're embarrassing me. So that's <laughs> awesome. Like I feel like she's kinda proud when I come Man. in. She's like, yeah, that's my mom. Nice. <laughs> Yay. I gotta bask in those moments right now because I don't know how long that's gonna last. <laughs> uh, you just you just hold on to those because Oh yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm on my last teenager, so oh yeah. You know, oh. Although I gotta say, I've I've you know been pretty blessed, but I always kept that mindset. Mm-hmm. Like, it, yep. oh yeah, it's gonna change any day change now. Any yeah. minute. <laughs> She's not quite 13 yet, so we're still in that preteen. Oh, but yes. I know when we hit full on teen, it's gonna be bad. <laughs> oh, teens are the best. Yeah, They're super fun. Oh. All right, well, are you guys ready to go talk to Jennifer Swope? I'm really excited. I'm excited too. Let's go. Welcome to Open Studios. And today we are uh, finally having a guest that I've been, uh, you know, working on for a few months um, or actually I've known about for a few months. Welcome to Quilt and Tell, Jennifer Swope. Jennifer is um, the David and Roberta Logie Associate Curator of Textile and Fashion Arts for the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Tracy. I'm so glad to be here this afternoon, and uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about quilts in this exhibition. I am so excited also. Uh, so when um, one of the people from your team actually reached out to me, Amelia, and let me know that this exhibit was coming, and the funny thing, there's actually, I have a whole connection that really made her email sort of bubble up to the top. <laughs> and um, so I actually went to college in Boston. I went to Emerson College, and that's where I met my husband, and I started my family there. And somewhere in um, my big box of photographs from back in the day when we actually printed off photographs, there's a photo of me holding my oldest son, uh, when he was just a few months old, and we were sitting in one of the exhibit halls at the Museum of Fine Arts. The museum has such a special place in my heart um, because that was one of the first museums that I ever had a membership to. I brought my children there all the time. And um, we I, I really vividly remember family day. Uh, there and there would be these really wonderful, you know, activities for the kids to do, and so it's it's such a a special place. And and when Amelia reached out to me, my son had just told us that he was moving back to Boston. My younger son, so not the one that was in the photo, but I have a 25 year old who's a chef, and he informed us that very week that he was moving back to Boston. So I was like, well, it the stars have all aligned. I need to learn more about this exhibit and I need to go back to Boston and go to the Museum of Fine Arts. So um, please tell us about the exhibit that is currently showing. Well, thank you, Tracy, for sharing that story. And um, it's actually very appropriate because the title of the exhibition, which also has a publication of the same title, is Fabric of a Nation, American Quilt Stories. So as we have planned for this exhibition, which includes about 50 works of art, it does include exactly 50 works of art. Most are quilts, but some are woven and embroidered bed covers. And we even have some works of art by contemporary artists that aren't even made of textiles, but are inspired by quilts. So we are... um, we are really honoring both uh, the textiles and and other other media that are used in this exhibition by these artists. There are six. There's a works by sixteen living artists, 
in the exhibition. But there's also work from as early as the 17th century in the exhibition. So it's got a big, wide arc. And um, in in doing that, we wanted to showcase um, some treasures from our collection, some of which have never been on view. And many haven't been on view in decades. So, um, so that was something that was very important to us. So that's why most of the work on view is actually from our collection. But we do have a few really important loans. But before I get to the loans, actually, I want to share with you that one of the works of art that we acquired for the exhibition at the very beginning of the pandemic is by Michael Thorpe, who also went to Emerson College. Oh my gosh. <laughs> nice. So I think you need to come back and see your fellow <laughs> alums work on yes. you. Um, needless to say, he's uh, he's from Newton and uh, his his mother is very proud of him. <laughs> She's a quilter. Oh my gosh. I think I know exactly who you're talking about. Um, I'd love to actually have him on the show. So I want to sort of zero in before we go any further talking about the exhibit. Um, I, I usually start out by asking about your background. Do you, what is your background and do you have a background in textiles or sewing or you know, how did you, how did you become a curator? Well, I don't, I, it's, I tend to disappoint people with my background because I don't know how to quilt at all. I, except for making some Halloween costumes and patching my jeans. Um, well, we I, can definitely help you with that. Yeah. <laughs> this, yes. Thank you. Actually, I will take advantage of that because I feel like I now I know all of these terrific quilt makers and artists who work with these textiles. And so like in my job, I'm not allowed to cut, I'm not allowed to touch anything with scissors. So <laughs> we'd really be going Imagine to the that. other side. <laughs> um, and I, uh, but I've always been interested in, in textiles and, uh, you know, I did a lot of like batiking in high school and college, which I love to do. And I've always knit and, you know, like I made doll clothes and things like that. Very, very casually, I would say. And again, Halloween costumes on as, as needed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't be, a, you know, scotch tape was my friend in those adventures. <laughs> and, but uh, I started working <laughs> in the MFA's textile and fashion arts department in uh, 2002. And I had my children were very young at the time, so I, I, I'm with you. Not quite nursing, but uh, but pretty young. And I was uh, the position was like a research position, so it was it was uh, great for me as a as a young parent. It was a couple of days a week and very flexible. And then it just grew into becoming an uh, an assistant curator, and and then uh, more recently associate curator. I had the real privilege of working on Quilts and Color, which was an exhibition at the Museum of Fine Arts that featured the Pilgrim Roy collection. And uh, Gerald Roy has just been, uh, I would say, my quilt mentor. And um, But before that, I, I went to Winterthur, which is uh, through the University of Delaware. And we had great training in textiles. Um, Deborah Craig was our, was our professor and our, our guide through that. So that was a great foundation. And then after graduate school, I worked in a number of places, including Historic New England, which was at the time the Society for the Preservation of New England Antiquities. So really that's that's probably where most of my that's where most of my experience with older textiles really, really came about. Um Jane Nylander was the director at the time, and she's just in a very generous person and pretty much knows everything about every New England textile made <laughs> from the 17th century, at least through uh, the, at least through the Civil War, probably really into the 20th century. So like most people, you know, I, I think I learned, I learned a lot on the job through really, really generous people. And as you know, there are lots of books written and, you know, it's interesting too, that books and books are so important, but there's really nothing better than learning person to person in front of something, you know, and having someone be able to like really, really look, I mean, in museums, we can't, we don't have the benefit of touching, but like, that's why I love to go to auction previews and fairs, you know, you could really, and, and like, I can talk about how quilters use a long arm quilting machine all the time, but just being able to go to a quilt show and just 
driving it around, although like the result is not good. <laughs> it's definitely a little demo thing that gets thrown away, I'm sure, in the throwaway pile. But just that that sort of hands-on understanding of something even um, I think I think really helps. And I think textiles lend themselves to that a lot. I don't know if you've ever talked to anybody who spins, like they they will stop what they're doing, give you some fiber and let you try to spin, even though it, again it's goes in the throwaway bin. But um, I find I find people who who make textiles and make things from textiles are in general, a very generous group. So <laughs> I've been able to learn a lot. So this exhibit is currently on display. And um, and while I haven't seen it in person yet, uh, I, I, you generously sent over some images from the exhibit. And it's a very wide arcing show. How did... Did the idea for the show come first or did the quilts that were going into the show come first and then you had to create a theme around it? Well, that's an excellent question, which actually has sort of a different answer than a lot of exhibitions. Most typically an exhibition idea will be proposed and part of the development of the exhibition idea and, and the object list is, and the sort of the story is, and then we will also do a catalog. We'll create a catalog with it, which, so, but in this case, it was the opposite order. So first we were going, we were planning a book starting around 2017 that would be highlights from the MFA's collection. So that's really why we wanted to include such early work because we have incredible examples of bed covers made um, made globally, but used with with American provenance or used in the in the Americas and specifically New England. So that was really important to us, and that's also why we didn't want to limit it to quilts. So quilts as a bed cover were much less common than woven bed covers in the 17th and 18th century in New England. And we were really fortunate to, um, we have some amazing woven coverlets from the 19th century. So, so we didn't want to like, we essentially, we knew we could give our audience a little bit of credit and use the word quilts and they would understand we were also going to talk about other kinds of bed covers. And then um, about two years into writing the book and and researching the book because it was great. We had an opportunity to really take a deep dive. We had a terrific intern one summer named Kira Buzzle. She did so much terrific work for us. And um, so we were able to really, really roll up our sleeves and get into some of the, some of the, the histories of the, of the works. And then um, we were uncovering such, such great stories that it sort of, it just developed into, into an exhibition. And as we know, quilts are big, so it needed to go into a big gallery. <laughs> and, um, and so that's really how the exhibition started. So when you look at the book, we have beautiful photographs um, of, of quilts and other woven and embroidered bed covers. There are 58 works in the book. They're all textile based or have textiles in them. And they are all, except for one, in the MFA's collection and specifically in the textile collection. When we went to when we went to design the exhibition, we couldn't put 58 quilts in. There just wasn't enough room. And then over the course of planning the exhibition, we all know the pandemic hit. So over the the pandemic delayed the opening of the exhibition by a year, which actually proved to be a gift in many ways because uh, we were able to uh, refine a lot of the ideas and acquire some work that could not be in the publication because the publication had already gone to the press, but that we think speak to visitors' experience of of the crisis uh, that we've that we've all experienced. So that's why there are a number of works, a number of people have commented that they were disappointed to find that not all of the works on view are, are in the publication. And we also have uh, some really important loans in the publication, really important loans in the exhibition. For example, the Harriet Powers quilt that belongs to the Smithsonian. So the book um, that we produced has a small picture <laughs> of the Smithsonian's Bible quilt by Harriet Powers. But of course, you can come to the exhibit and see both of them side by side for the first time ever. 
Wow. So is there a story behind that one? Did that one, was that part of the original grouping? Yeah, that was always something that we really wanted to do. And again, because of the pandemic, it was it was complicated, but everybody persevered. And the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, amazing team. They really helped helped it all. You know, we were all in it together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I don't, like when the pandemic hit, like we didn't know every. I mean, as we know, like every schedule was turned upside down. All plans, all effort to try to move people or things to to different places was, was disrupted. But, um, I think it is a, a testament to both organizations that, that we could, we could make this happen. And, uh, and it's, it's a space in the gallery that's, it's very special. It's, it's almost sacred to see these, these two national treasures together. So for our listeners, um, can you tell us a little bit more about the significance of those quilts? So Harriet Powers is um, sometime or often referred to as the mother of the African-American story quilt tradition. She was born into slavery in Athens, Georgia in uh, 1837, uh, where she married her husband. Uh, and then after the Civil War, she and her husband had a farm also in the Athens, Georgia area. Um, they had a number of children, three survived to adulthood. And I always like to remind people that these two incredible quilts, which are the only two known to have survived, made by Harriet Powers, they were made relatively later in her life. So she was in, she was around 50 and then around 60. So she was about 50 when she made the Bible quilt and about 60 when she made the pictorial quilt, which is part of the MFA's collection. So, and in her time, she was celebrated for her quilts. She won prizes. She probably helped her family financially. So she was a breadwinner. She was a celebrated, she might not have called herself an artist and she was not referred to as an artist, but she was making visual works that were not for beds. When, when people see this, they look almost like, they look almost like storyboards um, in that there are squares or which are often rectangular. And in them, on them, applique on top, are figures. So the Smithsonian's Bible quilt, which was made around uh, 1885, we think, um, that has stories from the Old and New Testament. So some of which, even for me, are very recognizable, like Adam and Eve, Jacob's Ladder. They are vibrant, and each one has figures in it that just seem to be so animated, yet so simple. And this is where the almost like the true artistry comes out in the sense that she had such a sense of economy that she can convey movement and emotion and, and like dramatic tension with figures without features. Then in about, about 10 years later, sometime between 1896 and 1898, she made the pictorial quilt. Um, so she called actually the what's called the Bible quilt that's part of the Smithsonian's collection, the Adam and Eve quilt. And we're not sure what she would have called the pictorial quilt. But in both cases, when she when she either sold or gave these quilts to to someone, two different people, uh, she was very precise in describing each block in her own terms. So this to me is very interesting because we have the work of 16 living artists in the exhibition. And in that we said, oh, please, you know, if you'd like to submit an artist statement that we can put on the label, we'd like to do that. Well, in a sense, these, these, these recorded descriptions of each scene, those are her artist statements. And we have them today because her work was recognized as being very special. <laughs> that's why the work survived. And that's why the statements survived too. So, What's different about the MFA's pictorial quilt by Harriet Powers is that is that it includes, in addition to scenes from the Bible, it also includes scenes from oral history. So they include descriptions of natural phenomena like the Leonid meteor shower on November 13th, 1833, five years before she was born, wow. <laughs> um, events that occurred in the 18th century, well before she was born, and then events that occurred in her lifetime. Um, there's one morality tale with no date. That they are they are equally presented with the Bible stories, same size, same materials, same colors, same animated figures. So, um, and off to the side, we have the key, uh, which was uh, written in in this 
you know, 1890s script, not by Harriet Powers, but dictated to, um, dictated to the writer by Harriet Powers with a description of each of the scenes and a very small photograph of her. So if you've ever, if you Google Harriet Powers or you look her up in a book, there's always the photograph of her standing. It's a black and white photograph. She has a dark colored dress on with a ruffle down the front and she's wearing an apron. The apron, she has shaped the bottom. She's made a scalloped shape to that. And then in this tiny little black and white photograph, you can see that she's inserted or reverse applique stars, just like the stars on both quilts. Oh, wow. wow. And then oh. in her hand, she is holding a piece of cloth and she's stitching. So to me, this, is, this says that she's presenting herself as an artist. This is just as important as Paul Revere holding a silver tea, a silver teapot in a Copley portrait. This is saying, this is who I am. This is my identity. So I, I think that what, what we want to do now is bring a whole new generation to the life and work of Harriet Powers and by extension, all of these quilts. You know, I, I, I think in being in the exhibition, I, I do get a sense that there is excitement about seeing these, this, this broad arc, which is complicated. <laughs> but I think, I think people appreciate the complication. I think if we had just done an exhibition on 19th century quilts, or we had said, okay, we're only, we're going to start after World War I, you know, if we had, if we had tried to contain it, I don't think we would have had the same opportunity to show some of our treasures and put them in this broader context. So I'm curious, were you able to find this much information about all the 50 quilts that are displayed there? Because if so, I can understand why. That's that's overwhelming. That's a lot. I mean, that is so much detail. <laughs> well, I, I think that's an excellent question, Ginger. I think that some of the works we do know, we have some, like, a, it's almost like the historical telephone game. Like, we can hear murmurs from the past, and there are these threads that we can we can pull forward. But some, we really just have the objects themselves. So we need to sort of um, take our visitor into, well, what is this made of? It's made of wool made in England, dyed with indigo. Well, what's the story? How does, how does indigo get made? You know, how is cotton harvested? Where was it? Where was that print? produced, you know, uh, and also I think we wanted to not only lead people into the stories of the many unseen hands that have made these works of art, but also acknowledge that none of this work would have survived without the help of un, undocumented people, whether they were enslaved people of color, whether they were indentured servants with very few choices in their lives, um, and, and generations of those people. And that's why they come forward in time to us, um, because people saw value in these things, and, uh, and which are beautiful works of art. Some people, when they look at the very earliest quilts in the show, they don't believe that they're that old. <laughs> Yeah, because even looking at the storytelling one, I was like, that is such a brilliant way to tell stories and to to be able to do that. And it does. It just feels like it's something that can you could very easily walk in and see that, you know, today somewhere in a very modern show. And I think that's pretty amazing. You know, and I'm I'm sitting here thinking about um, a few experiences I've had over the course of my quilting life, which is about 30 years in the making. Um, And you know, the stories that we are all told, you know, that, that quilts were somehow, um, just utilitarian people were saving scraps and making quilts to keep their family warm. And I just don't think that that's true. Um, I feel like quilters have always used their quilt making to make art and, and in a lot of cases, and I could be wrong, but I feel like the ones that were what they consider work of art are the are many of the ones that have have um, stood the test of time and and withstood, you know, are are still around today because they were precious. Yeah, I think I think in all great art, uh, you know, the great art sort of comes from those limitations often, and um, you know, if someone doesn't have the opportunities, maybe to uh, express themselves other ways than, than maybe not every quilt they make because they're probably in a hurry in certain situations or they're being as resourceful as they possibly can with the time and materials available. If that's their opportunity, they're going to take that opportunity and make the most beautiful thing they can. Exactly. Yeah. 
And just because they were stacked up on a bed with a lot of other quilts, it doesn't make it any less than something that was a watercolor being painted somewhere else by someone else. So, but I do appreciate that you noted that sort of complexity because the uh, people do have an idea about what quilts are. And, and it is actually, we should also <laughs> bring your listeners up, up to the sort of, you know, it is an art museum show <laughs> exhibition mm-hmm. on quilts. So there are, there's nothing ordinary about these. They represent um, not only one of the, like some of the most beautiful examples of their type, but also those that have survived in the best condition. Uh, so I like to remind people of that too, that, um, and, and we were very selective. There were so many that we could not include that would have been, that are great exhibitable, like they could have been in that show. Um, but it was just like the story we were trying to tell, you know, we acknowledged the complexity of what we were trying to do. We had to really pare down. And, um, as you can imagine, like it's, was probably pretty easy to get to about 65 quilts, <laughs> 60 quilts, but it was the last, you know, three or four decisions that were definitely the, the hardest. Oh, I don't know how you do that. Like, honestly, no. like they're so brilliant. And what I love too is the fact that you've incorporated um, the activist side of it. Because when I think of art, I do think of it as such a great way to be an activist. And the fact that you've chosen ones, um, I'm kind of curious about the uh, uh, Thorpe one. Because um, uh, for those of you that can't see it, it actually, it just says black man on there. And it says that it was created in 2020. I'm curious as to whether that was before Black Lives Matters or did that come out of Black Lives Matter? It was acquired very right after, very soon after the artist Michael Thorpe made it. Um, and Michael Thorpe was basically uh, learned about the murder of George Floyd mm-hmm. and uh, got up the next day and um, made that quilt. Um, uh-huh. So Michael Thorpe is uh, mixed race, and uh, li- he lives in he grew up partly in Newton, and um, he felt that he needed to make something. And the reason why it's untitled, but it is applicated with the letters black man that spell black man is that, and he made it very quickly. He made it that in one day um, is that he wanted the viewer to do the work. And so he, he published, he posted an image of that quilt that he made pretty quickly with a poem, essentially like a slam poem that he wrote, or I would call it a slam poem that he wrote and about his experience being a black man and being perceived as a black man. And, um, it was very powerful. And I, I would say the acquisition of that work was, was also a turning point for the project in the exhibition. We really want to, we wanted to, and we, I think we succeeded in doing this and we really wanted to privilege the voice of the contemporary artists whose work or the living artists whose work is in the show. So we have an audio guide, the MFA um, mobile app. It's very easy to access. You can just get it through the, through the website for the, um, for the exhibition or just the museum's website. And there are 10 stops, but five of, and five of those stops are um, living artists talking about their work oh. and it includes Michael Thorpe. So oh, wow. um, he does a much better job than I do uh, ah. describing his work. So I'd, <laughs> um, I'd encourage, encourage looking at that because there is no substitute to hearing artists talk about their own work. And I was excited to see that Bisa Butler was included. Um, Me too. Yeah. I mean, I've been following her for a few years now and I actually got to see um, the exhibit this past summer at the um, Art Institute in Chicago. And I I mean, I I still get goosebumps thinking about seeing her work in person because it's so incredibly visceral, but also, I mean, as a quilt maker to see what she's doing is just stunning. Um, and, and so I, I'm curious if, if she was always part of what your vision, you know, to include as one of those living artists, um, or how that came to be. Well, that is a great question because that was another turning point, um, a little earlier, uh, in 2019, really on the cusp of deciding that this book could really also be an exhibit too, uh, we acquired To God and Truth, which is uh, the title of the work in in uh, in the exhibition by Bisa Butler. And so for those who haven't had a chance to see it, it shows uh, these young men 
Uh, it's taken from a black and white photograph from about 1899 of the baseball team of Morris Brown College, which is uh, in Atlanta, still exists. And Bisa Butler chose it specifically from the National Archives collection of, which, of, in, of photographs because Morris Brown was founded by African-Americans for African-Americans. One thing that she does is she takes these figures in a small black and white photograph and she renders them in cloth. They're portraits essentially, but they're just larger than life size, which is a really interesting thing perceptually. Um, so that I agree. They feel like they can just pop out and be in the room with you. Um, we had the privilege of actually seeing her and meeting her, but in her studio and seeing this, this work before she quilted it. So she had taken all of the pieces that make the figures, pin them all together and put them on this large cloth that's polka dotted. So it's bl blue and black polka dots on the top and then pink and black, black polka dots on the base where the, where they're sitting. And, and I have to, and I know this, I know your, your audience understands this, not a drop of paint is used to make these figures and the light falls over them. They're so so beautifully modeled. It's, 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 it's really amazing. And when you see it up close, because I, and I was so privileged to see it between it's being sort of pinned and assembled and quilted. Then I got to see it quilted later. I really could see how her quilting process, like it's interesting because I think a lot of people can understand and appreciate her work with color and the pieces of cloth mm -hmm. that make up the color in that composition. But the quilting imparts this texture and depth and these shadows that really, and I'm sure, like, and this is why I want to learn how to quilt. Like, it was like, oh, that just does it. <laughs> it makes these figures really occupy a space. Uh, Jennifer, I, I, we just need to send you down. We need to send you down to Lori because she right? will take care of you. She will get you. She'll put that quilting <laughs> bug in you and you just will. <laughs> Oh, I'm telling you, you're ready. You're ready for it. <laughs> the show closes on January 17th. So, Lori, I'll come down and visit you on the 18th. Awesome. <laughs> I love it. Well, Jennifer, um, thank you so much for coming and joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Come and see the show. We will. We're going to be sending all of our listeners who are within any sort of, you know, way that they could get to Boston to, to head over to the Museum of Fine Arts and see this exhibit before. And it closes on January 17th. Yes. Fabric of a Nation, American Quilt Stories at the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. And it closes on January 17th, 2022. Yay. And then can they get the book as well? They can buy the book uh, through the MFA's website, and there are plenty of copies, and they'd make terrific holiday gifts. Oh, that's a great <laughs> idea. Good I'm going to send, send a link to my husband. Yeah. <laughs> there you Good go. Idea. Good idea. Yeah, lots of beautiful photographs of quilts. So um, it would be a great, great, great opportunity for people who really uh, work with textiles. I love it. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you. Oh my gosh. I think we could have talked to Jennifer for at least another hour. Oh, easily. Probably about one, just one more quilt. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know, right? I mean, wow. I had goosebumps almost that whole time while she was talking. Um, so for our listeners, after we stopped recording with Jennifer, she actually told us about a special event that is happening on December 7th. It'll be from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern time. So Boston timeline. Um, and it is a free virtual celebration of the life and work of Harriet Powers. So they are going to have some amazing speakers. We're going to drop a registration link in the show notes page and you'll be able to sign up for free and be able to hear some pretty amazing speakers talk about the quilts that are on exhibit. So um, we knew that we, you wouldn't want to miss that. I am definitely going to sign up for that. Oh, me oh, yeah. too. <laughs> oh, so I'm excited. Sounds amazing. Yeah, exactly. So I can't wait for that. Okay. So we are going to go right into our two minutes of kindness. 
we decided this time that Lori had something recently happen that was really kind of nice and special. Lori, why don't you tell us about it? So I'm finally to the point of the moving process where I have, I feel like I have time to start looking for my people. So um, I went to the second quilt guild meeting um, of Heartland Quilters in North Platte. And they were so kind and so welcoming. And I think I found my people. They were just so nice. Um, It's not a huge guild. There were probably 25 people there or, or thereabouts. And it just, it felt so special. I just kind of floated home. Well, in that group, that's a good size. Like that's enough where you can really get to know everybody. So that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so excited about it. All right. So I have a question that will sort of spin this into a call to action for our listeners. So what made it special and welcoming? Um, And the reason I ask this is because I went to a guild back in Illinois and I actually started and stopped several times and I just didn't really know anyone. And it was really hard to sort of make a connection when I didn't know anyone and they, they, they weren't, you know, I don't know. I don't want to say particularly welcoming because they were all fine. It was just like, no one had really gone out of their way to talk to me. Mm -hmm. Um, What did they do at this guild that made the difference? Okay, so first of all, they have name tags. And if you don't have a name tag on, you stand up and introduce yourself, whether you've been there a million times or not. So so for me, that was a great way to start figuring out people. And then um, show and tell is always fun, but they also said their name when they started show and tell. Hello. Hi, I'm Lori, and this is what I've done. So so they're helping me figure out who they are. And then after the meeting, oh, I don't know, I'm going to guess five or six ladies came up specifically just to say how nice they thought it was that I was there. Oh, see, that's really nice. So it sounds like they were just being flat out kind. They were. <laughs> they were just plain it's nice. Because, I mean, I think sometimes you forget when you're in a big group, especially if it's a group that meets all the time, that sometimes, you know, when outsiders come in, you really, you, you might not realize you've got this click, but you do. Mm-hmm. And so remembering like, oh, yeah, no, we have to be welcoming. We have to like open up those, yeah. open our arms up and do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have to warn you both. I've been watching. Uh, I I binge Ted Lasso all weekend, so I am on a kick right now. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh! Okay, so the first call to action is for all of our listeners to go watch Ted Lasso if they haven't. Yes, I agree. I am wholeheartedly. <laughs> I am probably the worst mom in the world. Parker had to stay home today because her voice is not feeling so good, and I told her I was like, "Fine, but here's the thing: if you stay home, you have to binge Ted Lasso." She's been binging Ted Lasso. Oh my all gosh, day. it's so good, and it just makes you feel good. Yes. Right. Okay. So then the next call to action I want for our listeners is for you all, if you belong to a guild, to go out of your your way and maybe your comfort zone and introduce yourself to someone new at your guild. I remember, you know, after my experience that I described, I remember I happened to be at market or something. Um, and I ran into Victoria Finley Wolf and I told her of my experience and she said, and here's the second part, part two of the call to action. Her, her, she said, did you bring something to show? And I said, no, I didn't. And she said, next time you go, you bring something to show because that will, you'll find your people that way. And she was right. After I did that, the next time I went, people started coming up and talking to me. So I guess this goes two ways. Um, So just that, that second part is sort of, you know, advice if you're, if you're really trying to make friends, but I think it's really, it's really hard, especially when you're the new person and you're in a big group (laughs) to sort of reach out and talk. It's intimidating. 
Oh, well, that guild is so lucky to have you, Lori. They, they don't know are. what they got. <laughs> they <are>. Well, maybe <laughs> they do. Yeah, let's hope. They'll be pleasantly surprised if they fig- when they figure it out. <laughs> Actually, they have already figured it out. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, my goodness. You're going to be like the greatest resource ever for them. <laughs> oh, I hope so. Yay. Yay. Well, it's been so nice talking to you all. I know. It always oh. is. Hey, it's Tracy. I hope you enjoyed our podcast, but I've got good news for you. It's not over yet. Candy Quilter now presents a special conversation with educator and computerized quilter, Megan Best. Welcome, Megan. Hello. Hi. I am so stinking excited to talk to you today because I discovered something really cool that you are doing with your long arm. You are actually using embroidery designs with your long arm. I am. I saw a video that you posted on your website that actually shows your handy quilter long arm stitching out an embroidery design. Huge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. How did you figure this out that you could do this? I've been computerized quilting for about 15 years and I knew it was a possibility. You know, I remember when I bought my machine, they were like, yeah, it's kind of like a really big embroidery machine, but nobody actually really did anything with it. And so every couple of years I would test out the theory. I had lots of different software programs that maybe would allow me to convert an embroidery design, but it was really still, we didn't do multicolored embroidery like I'm doing now. We ended up saying, well, you could, but would you want to? Mm -hmm. Because quilting is quilting. Embroidery is embroidery. Right. At some point, a few years ago, along with some changes with Handy Quilter software, made me start thinking in a little different process because I'm able to split up the colors and split up the files And so it kind of went, maybe I can do this, but still it was a, but could you, it's still going to look really horrible on the back. Mm -hmm. And I still was doing lots of embroidery on my home machine. I like embroidery. I like to make home tech items and purses and all kinds of other stuff. And so I really decided, wait a minute, when I'm doing my home embroidery, I don't treat it as a quilt. I don't throw my whole quilt sandwich in my embroidery machine. I'm doing my embroidery first and then I'm quilting it. Now, wait a minute, let's split that one up as well. Uh Uh So then with the software advances in ProStitcher, it allowed me to work that process through. One other key ingredient was the style of designs in embroidery that are available now. It's just a little bit more sketchy and less satin stitchy. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that's what I liked. And I've been buying those designs forever. Can I do my own? Yeah, but do I? know? I buy designs. <laughs> I create my own designs with a credit card. Yes. Because um, it's so easy. I may have a cart at a couple of sites, always filled every single week. Mm-hmm. And I use mostly, I use embroidery library and urban threads. Mm-hmm. And I do have permission from them to do what I do, which is seriously enlarge them way beyond what we think the capabilities are. So I'm not doing this without their permission and teaching them that there could be problems, but I work within that. So along with the style of designs, the software, and my own crazy head that thinks so far out the box that the box isn't even in the room, Mm -hmm. I came up with a method to kind of make it work. And then I started. It's been a few years that I've been doing it. I've done probably 80 or 90 different designs where I've enlarged them from an eight by 11 is what my home embroidery machine will do. And I've done things as much as 35 or 40 inches tall. Wow. And I just did a flamingo that I made almost 40 inches tall. Oh my goodness. My throat space is about 18 or 19 inches. So I am limited by that. I don't split up my designs. Besides, that would make them so huge, and, and they already take a long time to embroider. So it's pretty awesome. It's really awesome. It's kind of a fun, different way to use up thread, which is, you know, one of the things I collect. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have so much thread. Um, so yes. I have so many questions. Okay. Okay. So first, 
how do you choose a design that will work? And do you even, at this point, I'm guessing you know what to look for? Oh, exactly. It's very, very specific what designs to look for. I don't use designs that have a lot of satin stitch. Mm -hmm. First off, I don't actually like that. So that kind of helps with my process. Designs that don't have a lot of satin stitch. Designs that have usually no more than, uh, I try and work with three or four colors at the most, but I've done things with 13 and 14 colors. It didn't bring me joy <laughs> Okay. just because it's a long process. And those designs really take, you know, eight or 10 hours. Wow. You know, if it takes an hour and a half on your home machine, it's going to take, you know, quadruple that on a long arm. Wow. So I look at the number of colors, the kind mm -hmm. of stitching, and it's really easy to find this kind of stitching. Once you look at, I have a couple of blog posts on embroidery that kind of show some of this, but also how many colors and how many stitches, how many stitches is kind of key. So if you're looking at an eight by 10 inch sort of design, I look at the number of stitches in the actual purchase design at about, you know, 25,000 to 30, thousand stitches. I've done some that were about 35,000 stitches, but they take a lot longer. And the denser the designs, the more it will pucker. Okay. Okay. So mm -hmm. that's also kind of key. When I enlarge it, I don't maintain the density. That's kind of important to know. It does enlarge without that maintaining the density, which means the designs look much more watercolory, which is kind of awesome. So it's looking at that. If it were to maintain the density, because the nature of embroidery is your embroidery is only going to be as good as your hooping. And we have a really big hoop mm -hmm. and it's almost impossible to get it as drum tight as you would on an embroidery machine. So you kind of have to work with that limitation. So the more I've done these designs, the more, well, the more I've bought and the more I want to do. So I have stacks and stacks and stacks of them and they're all over my house as well. <laughs> I love this. So if people want to learn how to do this, where can they find you? And do you teach this? I do teach this. I do have a couple of classes coming up. It's on my website. I try and teach it every few months. I also work with retailers. So they may offer this as a class through different handy quilter retailers. It is a process that really works well with Pro Stitcher. I'm not sure with other systems. Pro Stitcher has a couple of key elements on how this helps it work and keep everything aligned and straight that other systems I have not seen have. Okay. I don't know all of them, but you know, for the most part. So I teach them through retailers as well as through my own website. And you can also, if you have Pro Stitcher, I do have kind of a 18 or 20 page tutorial that you can purchase on how to work it all and get it going. If you don't do zoom classes, is that on your website? It is. Okay. And tell us your website and then I'll drop actually the link into the show notes. It is bestquilter.com Cause my last name is best. It's not that I'm the best quilter. You know, I usually have to say <laughs> that with wink, wink, nod, nod, because I have had people say, wow, she's kind of all full of herself when she says she's the best quilter, but <laughs> It is my name. It is your name. Um, and hey, the domain was available. Yes. So. And I've had the domain for about 15 or 20 years. So <laughs> I love it. You know, I so I, it. it's, it's not new, but even, you know, Instagram, best quilter. My email is best quilter. Everything is best quilter. So it's real easy <laughs> to remember. Yes. Okay, great. And where can we find a list of when you will be at Handy Quilter Retailers? At handyquilter.com. At handyquilter.com. And if you look under education. There is a list there. I usually post links on my Facebook best quilter page. If there's room, I, of course, when I work through a retailer, they want to have their own people there first in their local area. If there is still room in a zoom class, then they open it up to people outside the area. Wonderful. Okay. And I will also drop the video that I think is just <laughs> so fantastic of your, it's just a really short video that shows you stitching out one of the designs and how cool it is. It's literally a minute long. So I want all of our listeners to go to the show notes and click on the link and watch the video because your mind will be blown. Thank you awesome. so much for joining us today, Megan. 
Thank you. And thank Handy Quilter for making such an awesome machine with such fabulous <laughs> capabilities. Go to handyquilter.com now to find the right machine, local event, or quilting class for you. Thanks so much for listening to Quilt and Tell. Remember, you can find more information about our sponsors or what we talked about today in our show description. If you haven't already subscribed, find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please tell your friends. Thanks for listening and happy quilting. The Quilt and Tell podcast is produced by me, Tracy Mooney, and our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer.